The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The Wellness Community and Gildas Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 100 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. Well, you know, over the years, we have uh, explored cutting-edge advances in cancer detection and treatment in our special series called Innovation Happens. It's always fascinating and encouraging to learn about work that has the potential to make a significant impact on cancer care. But where do scientists get their ideas that lead them down a path of inquiry and discovery? With us today is Dr. James Welsh, and he is going to share with us his journey of investigation. Like an old-fashioned private eye... Dr. Welsh is following clues and chasing leads that he hopes hold the answers to mysterious events he has witnessed as a doctor. And today we are going to go on that ride with him. Dr. Welsh is a a professor, director of clinical and translational research and medical director of radiation oncology at the Stritch School of Medicine, Loyola, Loyola University, Chicago, and chief of radiation oncology at the Edwards Hines Jr. VA Hospital. He also practices and conducts research. Dr. Welsh has authored over 100 scientific articles and is a sought-after lecturer. He has worked in the oncology department of the Johns Hopkins Hospital, the human oncology and medical physics departments at the University of Wisconsin, and was full professor of neurosurgery and radiology at LSU Shreveport. He is the current president of the American College of Radiation and Oncology and is on the board of directors for the Society for Brain Mapping and Therapeutics. He recently concluded eight years of service on the advisory committee for the medical uses of isotopes, which advises the United States Nuclear Regulatory Commission on medical issues. He's also the author of the recently released book, and we're going to get into this, Sharks Get Cancer, Mole Rats Don't, How Animals Could Hold the Key to Unlocking Cancer Immunity in Humans. Dr. Welsh, I am exhausted already just reading that biography. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Kim. It's my pleasure to be here today. Well, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your work and um, the environment in which you practice medicine and how, how that has led you um, on this journey. So, Dr. Welsh, you've said that radiation therapy um, is an amazing field. What excites you about it? Tell us about what's happening in the field of radiation therapy today. Well, radiation therapy is an exciting and amazing field. It appeals to me for two reasons. First, it's personally very appealing to me because... I really enjoy working with the sophisticated technology and the physics. I have been in the field long enough to have witnessed the evolution of 
techniques such as 3D conformal radiation therapy, intensity modulated radiation therapy, all these techniques and technologies that come with fancy names, image-guided radiotherapy. But uh, I also had the pleasure of working with specific types of radiation that uh, are very unique and very appealing from a scientific perspective, such as neutron therapy and proton beam therapy. Each one of these approaches has an advantage or serves as some form of an improvement over previous techniques as far as effectiveness and as far as reduction in patient side effects. So it's very appealing in in that regard. It's also professionally very rewarding because radiation oncology is an exciting medical discipline that works and works very well for many patients. So, so take us back a little bit in your, your career. What led you to a career in oncology and specifically in, in radiation oncology? I mean, did you know from the time you were a boy that you wanted to be a doctor or was there sort of an, uh, an aha moment uh, at all in your life? Well, it's uh, kind of a weird and convoluted story, but uh, I do think that there was a very influential member at the Staten Island Zoo who altered my career trajectory in a very major way. When I was a little child, I had the pleasure of knowing the giant Galapagos tortoise at the Staten Island Zoo named Jalopy. (laughs) He was a resident of the zoo for many decades. Back in the 60s and 70s, little kids like me got to ride on his back. But um, when I was away at college, I learned that Jalopy got cancer. I never heard of such a thing. I didn't know that tortoises could get cancer. I thought only people could get cancer. I heard that he developed something called a sarcoma. I never heard of such a thing. It turns out that he wound up getting surgery and radiation therapy, and that was the first time I ever heard of radiation therapy. So I think you could see that uh, Jalopy the tortoise had an immense influence on my career overall. In any case, it turned out that uh, Jalopy, after his surgery and his radiation therapy, he got strapped to a skateboard to keep his neck and uh, his wound out of the dirt. And so for a while, while he was strapped to the skateboard, I think he was able to really zoom around that tortoise pen faster than <laughs> any turtle in the history of mankind. <laughs> That's a great story. That's a great story. He was um, an inspiration to me, and I think that he was very influential in my desire to become an oncologist and specifically a radiation oncologist. Wow, that's great. Um, Dr. Welsh, so I know that radiation oncology is a pretty wide field and uh, encompassing diagnosis, encompassing treatment. Um, For our listeners who are new to the game, can you walk us through exactly what radiation oncology is? Oh, yes. Uh, Well, thanks for asking that because it is a very confusing and easily uh, um, misconstrued um, concept here. Radiation oncology is not really a diagnostic discipline. It's strictly a therapeutic discipline. Radiology, or now uh, more commonly called medical imaging, is a diagnostic discipline for the most part. But in the past, the two fields, radiation oncology and diagnostic imaging, were united and collectively called radiology. So for many years, there was a single field. Back then, 
radiology encompassed both the diagnostic branch and the therapeutic branch. Today, the diagnostic branch is still called radiology by many people, although it may more properly be called diagnostic imaging, while the therapeutic branch is radiation oncology or the treatment of cancer with radiation. A lot of patients get confused by this, and I think a lot of doctors are still confused by it uh, as well. It's not uncommon for my patients to call me the radiology oncologist as opposed to a radiation oncologist. and Sometimes they just refer to me as their radiologist. So there is a good deal of confusion regarding this nomenclature. Yeah, yeah, and I know that in that same vein, Dr. Welsh, I know patients, you know, commonly, you know, for their treatment, they'll get maybe surgery and they'll also get chemotherapy and radiation therapy. So, again, we've got some folks new to the game. Can you, you know, explain the difference between chemotherapy and radiation therapy and why, um, with some patients, do we use both of those as a treatment option? Sure. Well, uh, just to explain some of the basics, uh, chemotherapy is, is the administration of drugs intravenously, that is, into the blood via a needle, or maybe uh, taken by pills. Chemotherapy is therefore a systemic form of treatment. It gets into the body, gets into the bloodstream, and it works from head to toe. In contrast, radiation therapy is a local therapy. It really only addresses the site that the radiation is aimed at. In this way, it's like surgery, another form of local treatment that only addresses the site that's that's being operated. Chemotherapy is administered by medical oncologists. Radiation therapy is administered by radiation oncologists. And sometimes complicated surgeries, cancer surgeries, are done by another cancer specialist called a surgical oncologist. So... There are many different types of weapons used against cancer, chemotherapy, radiation therapy, surgery, and there are specialists that manage these different modalities. I see, I see. Um, And I I know, Dr. Welsh, that radiation therapy can also be used for what we refer to as as palliative care. Is that right? Can you talk about what palliative care is and, and, and how radiation therapy is used in that, uh, in that treatment context? Sure. Well, radiation can be used with curative intent, meaning that our aim is to definitively rid the patient of their cancer. But as we all know, there are many people in whom that is not a realistic goal. So we can still help them with their symptoms using radiation therapy. There are people with very advanced cancers who simply cannot be cured, but in these individuals, radiation therapy might be very helpful in relieving their pain, in relieving any bleeding from tumor or or cancer, maybe in reversing blockage in the esophagus to allow them to swallow easier, Mm. maybe to to, uh, relieve obstruction in the lung and help them breathe better. Radiation therapy is often the most effective treatment for such situations. Well, just as we're going to the break here, um, Dr. Welsh, just so we can kind of wrap up this discussion, particularly for, for, you know, for patients who maybe have been recently diagnosed, trying to understand who, who, who are the folks who could potentially comprise their medical team? At what point do, in the patient's cancer journey do you enter the scene, and how does the, the team sort of collaborate on the different treatment modalities the patient may need? 
Sure. Well, not all cancer patients are going to get radiation therapy, mm-hmm. just as not all cancer patients are going to get surgery or chemotherapy. It depends on the specific cancer. For instance, radiation therapy might be the primary treatment for an early-stage larynx cancer, cancer of the voice box, or maybe cancer of the prostate, um, and we might get involved right after diagnosis. Um, it could be an alternative to surgery in such situations. But for other cancers, radiation may come later in the diagnosis or not at all. Uh, breast cancer is an example of a cancer where radiation therapy is often introduced very early after the diagnosis mm-hmm. when the patient is choosing between mastectomy versus breast-conserving therapy. In other situations, such as with melanoma, an advanced uh, or potentially dangerous type of skin cancer, patient may never be treated with radiation therapy at all, mm-hmm. or the radiation might be given much later for palliation of pain or to stop bleeding, for instance. But overall, about 50% of cancer patients will see a radiation oncologist or be treated with radiation therapy somewhere along the way. Got it. Got it. Very, very helpful. We're going to take uh, a quick break here. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We are talking with uh, Dr. James Welch. We're, we're uh, we're really searching for answers um, in unlikely places, and Dr. Welsh has a new uh, a new book out that we're going to talk about uh, after the break. So uh, please don't go away. I'm Kim Tebaldo. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be right back. Thank you. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help and many of the people in their lives want to help, but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains, sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar, to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at CancerSupportCommunity.org. NovoCure, a company dedicated to advancing cancer therapy, is proud to recognize May as National Brain Tumor Awareness Month. NovoCure is the pioneer of a treatment modality, which is FDA-approved for the treatment of newly diagnosed and recurrent glioblastoma. Approximately 12,500 new cases of glioblastoma or other brain tumors that may eventually transform into GBM may be diagnosed in the United States each year. This May, NovoCure is joining with leading cancer advocacy organizations at awareness events across the country to recognize patients and caregivers impacted by brain cancer. NovoCure is the sponsor of www.gbm.com gbmcommunity.com, a new website that invites people to show their support and engage with others who've been affected by brain cancer. Visit www.gbmcommunity.com, a new informational resource that provides information on GBM and links to resources and advocacy groups. To learn more about NovoCure, visit www.novocure.com. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day.
You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you in part by AstraZeneca and Lilly Oncology. I'm Kim Tibaldo, and with us today is Dr. James Welsh. Dr. Welsh has just written a book called Sharks Get Cancer, Mole Rats Don't, How Animals Could Hold the Key to Unlocking Cancer Immunity in Humans, in which he explores fascinating clues from sources as varied as animals, infections, organ transplants, and pregnancy, with the goal of finding a way to fully harness the body's own immune system to fight cancer. Dr. Welsh is Professor, Director of Clinical and Translational Research and Medical Director of Radiation Oncology at the Stritch School of Medicine, Loyola University, Chicago, and Chief of Radiation Oncology at the Edwards Hines Jr. VA Hospital. He also practices and conducts research in proton beam therapy at the Northwestern Medicine Chicago Proton Therapy Center. He is the current president of the American College of Radiation Oncology and is on the board of directors for the Society for Brain Mapping and Therapeutics. So, um, Dr. Welsh, I want to dive into the book, but I want to just take a, a step back. In the book, you cast a pretty wide net and explore, in part, how animals and other phenomena in nature can help us understand how to use the immune system to treat cancer. What originally led you down the path uh, of, of that research and, and really using that as, a, uh, as sort of a foundation for your book? Well, I got very much interested in the immunology of cancer and the potential of cancer immunotherapy about 15 years ago when I had a patient who experienced what's called the abscopal effect. This was a young man in his 30s. He had a cancer called melanoma, which is a potentially very dangerous type of skin cancer. Despite surgery and chemotherapy, his cancer progressed Eventually, it got into his lymph nodes, his lungs, his liver, and into his bones and started to cause agonizing pain. Mm. So as I was talking about earlier, radiation therapy is often a very effective way of dealing with cancer pain. So I gave him palliative radiation therapy to relieve the bone pain in his hip. I only aimed the radiation at his hip and his thigh bone and only gave him a few doses. A few months later, all the cancer in his body completely disappeared. The cancer in his liver, the cancer in his lungs essentially vanished. So this was a very surprising and seemingly miraculous result, and I really was not uh, aware of what had happened. I was not familiar with the abscopal effect at that time. I'd never seen anything like it before, Mm -hmm. and... uh, I learned that this was something that does happen on very rare occasions following local therapies, such as radiation therapy. In his case, the cancer stayed in remission for many years. Um, It turns out that some, maybe many, abscopal effects are not really very long-term remissions. Uh, So although the abscopal effect was and still is very rare, I haven't seen too many cases over my career at this point, Back then, it was met with a lot of skepticism, but today it is being recognized as something that could very well be real and very important, and uh, the underlying um, immunological mechanisms are being investigated. Thanks to a lot of the new cancer immunotherapy strategies, the abscopal effect is being seen more commonly today, 
And there is some research that is specifically aiming to produce abscopal effects intentionally. Well, I I know Dr. Welsh that that um, and and you know and that's uh, the foundation for that is is fascinating. But I know I I know that there's a lot of um, discussion now, excitement now about immunotherapy um, in treating cancer. So, can you talk to us a little bit about really some basics about how the immune system works, and really maybe talk a little bit about the excitement around immunotherapy and 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 how it's working in cancer treatment and, and what we can expect from that. Oh, uh, oh boy. Do we have time for a full semester's <laughs> worth of <laughs> conversation here? So um, the immune system can be thought of having two main branches. The first would be called the innate immune system. It's called innate immunity because it is capable of fighting infections from day one. Innate immunity doesn't have to be trained to recognize um, enemies. It knows the difference between a bacterial cell and normal cell, and it will try to eliminate unwanted invaders like bacteria, parasites, and fungi. But there's another branch of the immune system called the adaptive immune system. Uh, The adaptive immune system has to learn or adapt itself to specific situations. For example the adaptive immune system might have to learn by vaccination how to fight off infections by viruses or bacteria. The adaptive immune system is made of cells called T cells and B cells. The B cells are the ones that produce antibodies, which are just proteins that neutralize toxins and maybe they bind to bacteria and help the immune system clear an infection. After a vaccine, B cells might produce antibodies that recognize certain specific viruses or bacteria, such as polio, smallpox, shingles, hepatitis, other things that we get vaccinations for. And this allows the immune system to later off fight any challenges from those germs in the future. But the, immune, the adaptive immune system doesn't automatically know from day one how, how to fight off its enemies. It has to be trained to recognize its enemies and then after the training, whether it be by vaccination or by a pre- previous infection, it will then be able to, to battle that type of infection in the future. Uh, T-cells are a branch of the adaptive immune system, and they're involved in directly killing invading germs or also killing cells gone bad for example, a virus-infected cell, or a cancer cell. So T-cells might be the the mainstay of the immune system's battle against cancer. But in the end, both branches of the immune system, both the innate and the adaptive immune system, can be involved in fighting off cancer. Yeah, it's exciting. It's um, it's exciting, and and uh, I I know that in your book, and and, and this kind of surprised me uh, a little bit because we always have this idea that cancer is not contagious. But one of the things you investigate in the book is contagious cancer, which occurs in the animal world. So how is how, how is cancer contagious, and is it possible that animals could pass that contagious cancer onto humans? Well, amazingly, cancer is contagious in certain animals under certain situations. And by contagious, I mean that uh, the cancer is directly being transferred from one animal to another as opposed to being caused by a virus that 
causes cancer and gets transmitted from one animal to another. Um, it seems that there are four examples of, of contagious cancers in the animal kingdom. Um, in Tasmanian devils, by biting one another, Tasmanian devils seem to be transferring cancer cells from the tumors onto their gums, and they develop tumors in their mouths and on their faces. This, huh. this uh, cancer is called devil facial tumor disease. When they fight, when they bite each other, the cancer spreads from one Tasmanian devil to another. This has been going on now since the 1990s, and in that time, the species has been threatened with extinction in wow. some parts of Tasmania. Uh, there are other examples. Uh, for example, canine transmissible venereal tumor is, is a contagious cancer in dogs. But the interesting thing about that is that it undergoes spontaneous remission. And that suggests that the immune system might somehow be able to awaken and recognize and vanquish that cancer. Uh, the other thing that's amazing about this, this dog contagious cancer is that it's been passed along from dog to dog for over 11,000 years. It's absolutely amazing. This is an immortal cancer line. It's been going on for, for millennia. Um, there's another contagious cancer that was recently discovered just a year ago in clams. Um, on the Atlantic seaboard of North America, mm. clams are, are disappearing because of wow. this contagious leukemia. They get it by siphoning in seawater that's contaminated with the leukemia cells. And then the weirdest one uh, I ever heard was this outbreak of contagious cancer in Syrian hamsters in a laboratory where mosquitoes, mm. mosquito bites, were transferring cancer from one hamster to another. Wow. So, it's very frightening to think that there's things worse than malaria, West Nile virus, and Zika virus yeah. out there that could be transferred yeah. by mosquitoes. That's got to be the worst. No kidding. Yeah, we're fighting for uh, fighting for for funding right now for uh, for Zika on Capitol Hill, and and uh, who knows, maybe the maybe the <laughs> uh, the fight needs to uh, expand in a whole other direction. We are um, talking today with uh, Dr. James Walsh. She has a fascinating new book out called Sharks Get Cancer, Mole Rats Don't, How Animals Could Hold the Key to Unlocking Cancer Immunity uh, in Humans. And in the book, he explains fascinating clues from sources uh, as varied as animals, infections, organ transplants, pregnancy, with the goal of finding a way to fully harness the body's own immune system uh, to fight cancer. This is um, uh, uh, really, again, a fascinating book. We're learning a tremendous amount uh, about cancer. I think, again, we we've, we've, we've have some, uh, some beliefs that we've held about cancer that are being busted um, in some of these, uh, these interesting and, and fascinating findings uh, that we're discussing in the book. Again, the book's called Sharks Get Cancer, Mole Rats Don't, How Animals Could Hold the Key to Unlocking Cancer Immunity in Humans with Dr. James Welsh. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We have a lot more to cover uh, with Dr. Welsh in this fascinating conversation. We're going to take just a quick break, so don't go away. We'll be right back. NovoCure, a company dedicated to advancing cancer therapy, is proud to recognize May as National Brain Tumor Awareness Month. 
NovoCure is the pioneer of a treatment modality, which is FDA-approved for the treatment of newly diagnosed and recurrent glioblastoma. Approximately 12,500 new cases of glioblastoma or other brain tumors that may eventually transform into GBM may be diagnosed in the United States each year. This May, NovoCure is joining with leading cancer advocacy organizations at awareness events across the country to recognize patients and caregivers impacted by brain cancer. NovoCure is the sponsor of www.g gbmcommunity.com, a new website that invites people to show their support and engage with others who've been affected by brain cancer. Visit www.gbmcommunity.com, a new informational resource that provides information on GBM and links to resources and advocacy groups. To learn more about NovoCure, visit www.novocure.com. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help and many of the people in their lives want to help, but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains, sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar, to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at CancerSupportCommunity.org. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Insight Corporation, NovoCure, and Taiho Oncology. I'm Kim Tibaldo, and our guest today is Dr. James Welsh. He has just released a riveting book called Sharks Get Cancer, Mole Rats Don't, How Animals Could Hold the Key to Unlocking Cancer Immunity in Humans, in which he explores different phenomena observed in animals uh, and in the animal kingdom, as well as other parts of the natural world, to see how these insights might be applied to using the human immune system to combat cancer. Dr. Welsh is a nationally known specialist in radiation oncology. He's a professor in the Department of Radiation Oncology at Loyola, Loyola University, Chicago Stritch School of Medicine. Dr. Welsh is associate editor of several publications, the Journal of Radiation Oncology, the American Journal of Clinical Oncology, the Biochemical and Biophysical Journal of Neutron Therapy and Cancer Treatment, and a member of the editorial board of Technology in Cancer Research and Treatment. So, Dr. Welsh, the title of your book uh, certainly catches uh, catches people's attention. And I know, again, we're talking about, you know, certain phenomena uh, in, in, the, uh, in the animal world and what we can learn from that. But this idea, sharks get cancer, mole rats don't. Are we doing a little bit of myth-busting there in the title? Well, we are. And I, I think uh, there's a disclaimer that I'd better... Uh, better um, announce uh, during this, uh, the answer to this question, too. So the, the background is that during medical school um, in the 90s, I remember there was a book that came out claiming that sharks don't get cancer. And it also claimed that shark cartilage was the cure for cancer. Yeah, some yep, people, I remember that. Yes, yeah, and some people, including myself, were very curious about this. And since I was thinking of going into radiation oncology, I started to get worried. People warned me that, well, the field of radiation oncology is not going to be necessary in another five years if this proves to be true. 
if shark cartilage can really cure cancer. Well, it turns out that it wasn't true. Sharks do get cancer. Shark cartilage does not cure cancer. Radiation oncology still exists. Shark cartilage has never cured anybody, as far as I know. But there are some other animals that are out there that are relatively impervious to cancer, including naked mole rats and blind mole rats. They normally don't get cancer. So I started to wonder, what's their secret? Is there anything that we can learn and copy from them in the clinic? I'm not advocating eating naked mole rats by any means. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But I think that uh, um, the title, um, I, I didn't mean to be misleading, but it is not entirely correct because... Naked mole rats are not 100% resistant to cancer. In fact, after the book was published, uh, about a month into the, the publication, there was a report of a naked mole rat that got cancer. Uh, this was a naked mole rat that lived in a zoo environment, um, not sure about the oxygen levels in that zoo, and it could be that high oxygen levels for naked mole rats could possibly predispose them to cancer, even though their baseline is very, very cancer-resistant. But uh, in any case, there are animals that do seem to be rather resistant to cancer, and there are people, by the way, that are also relatively impervious to cancer. I think by studying these examples in nature, we can learn an awful lot and possibly help people in the clinic. Well, I, uh, I think that um, one of the other areas that you visit in the book um, that, I, that I think is interesting is, is uh, Coley's toxins. In your search for answers, you certainly don't shy away from revisiting some controversial treatments from the past, in, including Coley's toxins. So can you tell us about Dr. Coley's treatment for cancer, why it was controversial, and, and what we may have learned from it? Sure. It's one of the most fascinating things in all of medicine. Coley, uh, around the the turn of the 18th century, start of the 19th century, um, start of the 20th century, rather, had the idea that a very serious infection might stimulate the immune system to kind of fight for its life. And Mm -hmm. if there was a serious infection in a cancer patient, there would be an epic battle between the person's body and his immune system versus the bacteria, and no prisoners would be taken. Even cancer cells could be killed as collateral damage. This wasn't a brand new idea. Coley had uh, seen other physicians who had described the same thing. In fact, I think the patron saint of cancer, St. Peregrine, might have experienced a miraculous remission of cancer after developing a horrible infection. So this concept of infection being associated with remission of cancer was not brand new. But Coley was the first one, I think, to scientifically and systematically explore the concept. Of course, it was highly controversial because penicillin and other antibiotics had not yet been invented or discovered. So when Coley has given patients serious infections intentionally to spur on their immune system, you can just imagine the controversy uh, that this treatment uh, was riddled with back in the pre-antibiotic era. Um, It was probably seriously in violation of the Hippocratic Oath of First Do No Harm. Mm -hmm. But uh, Mm -hmm. 
later on, Coley figured out that maybe there were safer methods of using dead bacteria instead of living bacteria, and that became Coley's toxin. Uh, surprisingly, administration of Coley's toxin met with success in a few cases. And according to these descriptions that I went ahead and read, these were in cases that would not even be curable with today's modern methods. So I was just uh, astonished and fascinated with these case reports of advanced cases of cancer being eradicated by these, uh, these overwhelming infections. But the point is that uh, that approach remains so interesting and possibly very important today as we enter a new era of uh, cancer immunotherapy. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's um, certainly a, a fascinating history um, and story. And again, as you said, you know, coming back around as we look for ways to harness the immune system to fight, uh, uh, to fight cancer. Um, another area that you explore is um, around aging and cancer. And we often say uh, that the greatest you know, risk factor for cancer is, is uh, age. And uh, I think the uh, working theory around that has been that, um, that uh, as we age, that allows more time for, um, for cell mutations to occur and for potentially cancer to, to grow or, uh, or spread. But you know, you're sort of suggesting um, that uh, perhaps we need to revisit that, uh, the, the, the relationship between age and the likelihood of a cancer diagnosis. And there may be other factors at play that relate to the immune system, Dr. Welsh. Is that true? I do assert that. Um, the, the most widely accepted model for developing cancer is the mutation theory of cancer. And this, this theory holds that cancer is due to an accumulation of mutations, mutations that could cause cancer. And the longer one lives, the more of these potentially cancer-inducing mutations one will acquire. Thereby, the odds of uh, getting cancer increase with age. According to this theory... All of us are going to get cancer if we live long enough. Mm-hmm. But looking at the data and the evidence in the animal kingdom, there are serious flaws in the theory that make me wonder if there could be an alternative explanation. So the alternative hypothesis that I personally find attractive, um, I call the immune failure theory. Um, we know that the immune system tends to weaken with age, and a classic example of this is reactivation of the chicken pox virus decades after getting the chicken box, pox and having it reemerge as shingles. It's the same virus. It just has been controlled by the immune system for many decades. So I think that this alternative hypothesis of cancer etiology has got a lot of support going for it, um, especially in those cancers that are caused by viruses. But I think that it probably is true even for cancers that are not caused by viruses. When the immune system is weakened, for example, in people who are on immune-suppressing drugs after an organ transplant in order to prevent rejection, those people have a much, much higher chance of getting cancer. This suggests that the immune system is critically important for preventing cancer and fighting cancer. Wow. uh, It really is uh, some fascinating 
theories that we're working with here. Um, we've only got a, just a quick minute until our, our next break here, Dr. Welsh, but I, I really do find this um, fascinating. I'm just curious, what kind of reaction have you received from the medical and scientific communities about your book? Uh, well, um, some of my friends initially were quite skeptical about any relevance of the fascinating observations that I had in the, uh, the animal kingdom, and a lot of my colleagues were doubtful that these interesting observations like contagious cancers would have any bearing on, on cancer immunotherapy. But slowly but surely, I think that many of my colleagues who were once doubters have, uh, have um, changed their minds, even if they didn't think that cancer immunotherapy would ever succeed because it was tried 20 or 30 years back. These individuals are, are turning around with uh, a new attitude because there's new data coming in and a lot of us are accepting the possibility that the new generation of cancer immunotherapy could fulfill the original promise of vanquishing cancer. I uh, hope that the logical frame light, framework outlined in the book may, may provide a path forward. But uh, slowly but surely, me and my colleagues who were mm-hmm. former, formerly skeptical about cancer immunotherapy are starting to change mm-hmm. our minds. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're talking today uh, with Dr. Welsh about his new book, Sharks Get Cancer, Mole Rat Stone, How Animals Could Hold the Key to Unlocking Cancer Immunity in Humans. We're going to take a quick break. We have more to discuss with Dr. Welsh. Please don't go away. We'll be right back. NovoCure, a company dedicated to advancing cancer therapy, is proud to recognize May as National Brain Tumor Awareness Month. NovoCure is the pioneer of a treatment modality, which is FDA-approved for the treatment of newly diagnosed and recurrent glioblastoma. Approximately 12,500 new cases of glioblastoma or other brain tumors that may eventually transform into GBM may be diagnosed in the United States each year. This May, NovoCure is joining with leading cancer advocacy organizations at awareness events across the country to recognize patients and caregivers impacted by brain cancer. NovoCure is the sponsor of www.g gbmcommunity.com, a new website that invites people to show their support and engage with others who've been affected by brain cancer. Visit www.gbmcommunity.com, a new informational resource that provides information on GBM and links to resources and advocacy groups. To learn more about NovoCure, visit www.novocure.com. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help and many of the people in their lives want to help, but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains, sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar, to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at CancerSupportCommunity.org. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. 
You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Bristol-Myers Squibb Celgene Corporation, EMD Serono, and Takeda Oncology. I'm Kim Tibaldo. Today, we're exploring lessons that can be learned from the animal kingdom and natural world in the fight against cancer with Dr. James Welsh. Dr. Welsh is a nationally known specialist in radiation oncology and author of Sharks Get Cancer, Mole Rats Don't, How Animals Could Hold the Key to Unlocking Cancer Immunity in humans. I, I can't believe the episode's uh, nearly over. Time has been um, flying. But again, just a lot of surprising uh, of findings and theories in the book, Dr. Welsh. But is it true that plants get cancer? Yeah, I was amazed to learn that plants can get tumors. And um, as I explored this a little bit further, I learned that in many ways, plant tumors are very similar to human tumors. They can be caused by familiar things like cancer-causing chemicals and viruses, but there is a, a big difference in that they can also be caused by some things that are, are truly surprising, such as, as a wasp sting. Now, maybe it's not the wasp sting or, or nobody knows exactly what, what induces the wasp egg to produce a tumor on a plant, but when a wasp lays its eggs on plant, um, it can cause something called a gall. So these types of wasps, gall wasps, are able to induce these galls or tumors in plants. And uh, it's, it was the most amazing thing to learn about this. Apparently this has been known by some for hundreds of years, but uh, it was brand new to me, and uh, it was fascinating stuff. I put a couple of pictures of of plant tumors, and gall wasps in the book. Yeah, yeah. And, and and again, as we sort of move towards the end of the show, Dr. Welsh, I just want to think about kind of the future a little bit. Are there any any treatments or diagnostic tools coming down the pipeline that you think are particularly exciting or that we should keep our eye on? Well, yes, there are new treatments that uh, are coming along and are proving to be surprisingly effective. Um, new T-cell therapies called CART, I think it stands for Chimeric Antigen Receptor T-cell Immunotherapy, but it, uh, it's a new form of immunotherapy against cancer, and it holds a lot of promise. There's something else out there that recently hit the scene within the past couple of years called checkpoint inhibitors. These are, are drugs that are designed to take the brakes off the immune system. The immune system has been, been held back from attacking cancer. It's been brainwashed into protecting the cancer as if it was the crown jewels. The cancers are masquerading as a baby. Cancer is disguising itself as an embryo or fetus, and as you, you know, the embryo and fetus have to be invisible to the immune system for propagation of the species. These new drugs, these checkpoint inhibitors, take the blindfolds off the immune system, allowing the immune system to recognize the cancer for what it truly is, an enemy, and attack the cancer. And um, these treatments are working with surprisingly good results thus far. And um, Dr. Welsh, do you, do you see um, this field of immunology continuing to grow? I mean, are, are we going to see more of these opportunities to sort of harness the immune system to fight cancer and, and, and other illnesses? I mean, is, are we only at the beginning of, of, of what the potential is here? 
I do believe we're just at the beginning. There's a lot of excitement um, at this time, and you might have heard about the new polio va- polio virus based uh, brain tumor treatment developed at Duke University. This <clears throat> this uh, polio virus gets into the brain tumor because of a receptor that only brain tumors have, brain tumor cells have, but the virus doesn't kill the cancer. It's the immune reaction to the virus that, that wipes it out. There are many similar strategies being developed, and I think we're just at the, the tip of a big iceberg, not just in cancer immunotherapy, but understanding autoimmune diseases such as ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease and psoriasis and a whole host of other diseases that involve the immune system. Cancer immunotherapy is one of the many that uh, is making big strides forward thanks to the new understanding of immunology. Do you think that, um, do you think that it's reasonable for patients to be more hopeful now more than ever uh, uh, around advances in cancer treatment and, and cancer care. I mean, we certainly know, again, back to the issue of, uh, you know, the aging issue, 77 million baby boomers in this country, and, and certainly the uh, projections show that we're going to be seeing a lot more cancers, a uh, lot, lot more folks living, living longer with cancer, a lot more folks dealing with multiple recurrences of cancer. I mean, is there, is there cause to be uh, hopeful these days in the cancer conversation? I do think so. I think that although we're just at the, the uh, tip of the iceberg, the results that we're seeing with the current generation of cancer immunotherapy are, are, are qualitatively different from the responses that we've seen to other kinds of treatments. For example, chemotherapy, molecular targeted, radiate, targeted therapy, radiation therapy may put the remission, cancer into remission for a while, but often it's a discouragingly short while. With the immunotherapy approaches, although not everybody's responding, the patients who do respond are occasionally experiencing long-lasting responses. And this is very encouraging because the longer somebody is out there, two years, three years, five years, with no sign of cancer, the less likely it is that that cancer is ever going to come back. So mm-hmm. there is reason for, for hope with these new immunotherapeutic agents. And reasons to, uh, to do things to help boost our immune system? Absolutely. Um, although we have to be careful here because boosting the immune system alone is not going to be the answer. 15, 20, 30 years ago, we mm-hmm. all thought that cancer immunotherapy was going to be the cure. And yes. we found new ways of stimulating the immune system, boosting the immune system. But yes. it strengthened the immune system, but also strengthened the protectors of the tumor. There are, cancer, there are immune cells that were protecting the cancer because they were treating it as if it was an embryo or fetus. We have mm-hmm. to take the blinds off the soldiers, and we also have to unbrainwash the immune cells that have been fooled into thinking that they're protecting an embryo or fetus. They're not protecting an embryo or fetus. They're protecting the cancer. They need to stop Mm -hmm. that, and the soldiers need to get in there and destroy that tumor. I think that Mm -hmm. that's where the new thrust is going to be. 
Well, Dr. Welsh, I, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show today and, and uh, sharing your insights and, and uh, insights that are, uh, uh, you know, in the book. And um, again, I certainly want to uh, encourage our listeners to take the time to, um, to find the book, to read the book, to learn more about the incredible uh, information that you've provided today. Again, uh, the book is called Sharks Get Cancer, Mole Rats Don't How Animals Could Hold the Key to Unlocking Cancer Immunity in Humans. Check it out. It's a fascinating read. Um, I uh, encourage you to do that. I also want to remind our listeners that um, uh, here at the Cancer Support Community, we want to make sure that no one faces cancer alone. And we have a host of in-person, online, and telephone support services for any person diagnosed with any cancer at any stage of their disease, also for the family members and loved ones of people with cancer. So please visit us at www.cancersupportcommunity.org if you want to grab a pen and write down uh, our uh, uh, helpline number. That is 888 888- Seven nine three nine three five five. Again, cancersupportcommunity.org, 888-793-9355. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.